Welcome to FedSpeak, brought to you by MNI Market News. I'm Pedro DaCosta, and I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Dave Altig to the podcast. Dave is the Atlanta Fed's research director, so he not only advises President Bostic on policy matters, but he also sets and leads the regional central bank's research agenda. He is currently president of the National Association for Business Economics as well. Before he joined the Atlanta Fed, Dr. Altig served as vice president and associate director of research at the Cleveland Fed, which he joined as a staff economist in 1991. So it's been a minute. Thanks so much for joining FedSpeak, Dave. Glad to be here, Pedro. Let's start with a big picture question on kind of how you see the inflation outlook at the moment, whether you think price pressures have peaked and how, just how you would describe the inflation picture as a whole. You know, it may be that inflation has peaked, but in some sense, I don't think uh, that's the most important question to be asking, or certainly not what we're so focused on. We're focused more on the question of, you know, how fast is it going to come down? So even if it doesn't go up, it's obvious to everyone. I mean, this is just, uh, you know, basically explaining the obvious that uh, it, it's very high and, and it seems to be stuck with few signs of mitigating yet. Um, so the, the the key development over the course of the next year is whether we're going to see moderation um, uh, proceed at a pace that gets us pretty quickly to something near the, uh, the FOMC's uh, goal. And that seems highly uncertain. So what factors in the inflation worry you the most in terms of uh, either sectors or the pervasiveness of, of particular measures? What's your, what's your source of concern there? Going into this, this meeting, I can tell you one of the things that surprised us on the staff at the Atlanta Fed, I mean, of course, that's really the only folks I can talk for, but we were not really expecting to see moderation in inflation to any great degree, you know, beyond sort of the headline effects from small falling uh, gas prices or something like that. Uh, so that wasn't much of a surprise that we haven't seen that. What was much more of a surprise is that particularly as we went about the process that we always go about, which is really boots on the ground, kind of anecdotal intelligence gathering, we were hearing very little in the way of closing supply and demand gaps. We thought we would hear much more about supply pressures relaxing. Really didn't. There, you know, obviously in some pockets they're getting better, but I think the way that uh, some of our contacts have described things is that, you know, every time one issue seems to get resolved, another one pops up. Whack-a-mole always seems to come up in these conversations. And not much in the way of easing demand pressures either. Labor markets are a part of both of those pictures and not much is budging. So, I mean, I think the biggest concern at the moment is whether or not the, the fundamental supply and demand imbalances that um, we need to see resolved to really get the inflation rate moving in the right direction on a sustainable basis. They just don't seem to have emerged yet. So you've been at the central bank for over 30 years, as I mentioned in the intro. And uh, I wonder, I wonder what you make of the policy response that we've seen. I mean, to, 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 if you had told me that we'd see seven, three, not one, not two, but three 75 basis point rate hikes in a row uh, at any point in my career to date, uh, you know, I would, I would have thought you were, you were kidding me. And, uh, and here we are. Yeah. Well, I would have thought the same thing. Uh, uh, so I, you know, I entered the, 
the Federal Reserve System as a staff economist in Cleveland uh, just before the 94, 95 uh, cycle, uh, which was really aggressive. Um, and of course, with very kind of substantial uh, bond market reactions. And, and, and in many ways, that set the stage for the evolution of Fed communications and, and essentially the approach to kind of gradually uh, adjusting the economic circumstances that played out over decades. So I would have thought we would never seen a situation where kind of policy would need to be as aggressive as that or would be as aggressive as that again. But, you know, if you compare just the, the size of the rate hikes over, you know, a comparable span of time, this is the most aggressive path of my, my career. So, you know, it's just surprising to me as you, of course, I never thought I was going to see inflation at the levels that we've seen over, you know, over the, this uh, post-pandemic period. And I guess it makes some sense that an outsized inflation issue would elicit an outsized policy reaction. Does that mean in your view that, you know, people talk about the potential for a policy error in the future? Does that, does the alacrity with which you're moving suggest that a policy error was already committed in the sense that Ended up behind the curve on inflation. No, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm going to talk from an insider perspective here. So um, uh, people can take that for what it's worth and discount as they seem appropriately. But I do, t I do think, and I mean this honestly, that the uh, behind the curve story is a little bit overplayed. We in Atlanta, as well as others I know, are pretty attuned to the breadth of the inflation issues. So, you know, one statistic that we look at religiously almost now is the percentage of the components in either the CPI or the PCE. CPI comes faster, so that's generally the one we're kind of looking at first. The percentage of the components on a weighted basis that are rising at rates that are inconsistent uh, with uh, stability. So 3% three, 3 or greater, 5% or greater. You know, and right now it's up around 70%. So it's, it's you know, very, very broad-based. Those signals did not really begin to emerge until basically near the end of the summer in uh, 2021. So it was, in, in many ways, you know, not surprising that we would sort of find ourselves in the camp of, you know, some of these outsized price changes are going to unwind. You know, we don't say the T word in Atlanta anymore, but that, uh, but, you know, that was, you know, that was a legitimate kind of view of how the dynamics of inflation were going to play out. Again, near the end of the summer, it began to get kind of apparent that that wasn't the case. And then really, since about September on, the committee through at least communication began to, you know, position themselves for a, an imminent tightening. So look, I'm not going to argue about whether or not uh, you know, it was, you know, a quarter late or something like that. If you want to argue that you can, and I will accept it. But I don't think that that kind of lag in a policy adjustment is really enough to explain the situation we've kind of seen evolve. That seems fair. I mean, it is, we're coming out of a unusual uh, and rare, thankfully rare global pandemic, which creates conditions that really have caught, have caught everybody by surprise. Even the folks who claimed they predicted the inflation didn't see all the supply chain issues that persist, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah, it's a pretty unique situation, and the historical analogs you know, have been pretty hard to come by. Absolutely. So Fed Chair Powell talked a lot about the need to endure a period of below-trend growth and also a softening of the labor market. What does that look like in your view? Well, I can tell you what we 
uh, hope it looks like and and what our staff thinking is on that question. So, you know, we're contemplating, you know, a growth in the coming year positive, but probably under 1% would be the staff forecast. Of course, this is not the same thing as President Bostic's forecast, but but the staff forecast is, you know, a fairly uh, a fairly soft uh, period of growth, some modest increases in uh, the unemployment rate, but kind of being able to weather through that period and begin to see the progress we need to see on inflation. It's a, it's a risk, you know, obviously the risk, I think, are weighted to the downside on that, even though I think probably compared to the SEPs, the staff at the Atlanta is, a, is on the lower side of all that. And it's a, always a, a bit treacherous to, to say modest increases in the unemployment rate, uh, particularly since, you know, we're, you know, we're, you're, you're talking about, I guess, if you kind of add up the SEP to where we were, you know, full percentage point or so, that's a real thing. And it's something that bites into the other side of our, our mandate. The path that would involve basically labor market softening by eliminating vacancies rather than actually eliminating jobs, I think is not crazy, but it's, you know, a, a fairly, it's a fairly narrow path to do things that way. You have to kind of rely on a lot of things going right. So we're still, we're still in the camp that this can happen with a period that doesn't uh, fall into negative growth and lots of layoffs and, and job losses. But the risks are clearly, I think, in the direction of a worse outcome than that. Sure. Given that you know, we've already had two negative quarters of growth, albeit modestly negative, and that your very own Atlanta Fed has this, the Atlanta Fed GDP now has this perilously close to, uh, to zero for Q3 as well. Does the strength of the labor market surprise you against that backdrop? Is this part of the unusual picture that we're seeing here, that there's a slowdown in, in economic activity, and yet you're seeing demand at very strong levels, apparently? Yeah, honestly, it does. Um, it's it's really hard to piece all that stuff together. I will say about the negative growth in the first half of the year. Uh, you know, that's that, those were kind of unusual numbers. The first quarter and even into the second quarter are dominated by kind of inventory and net export developments. And if you looked at something like you know we were tending to focus on, which was final you know, domestic demand to private, you know, or private demand to uh, domestic purchasers that was holding up that held up really well in the first quarter and was weak or much weaker in the second quarter, but was still sort of consistent with this slowdown, but not kind of disastrously into kind of recession territory. And we still think that that might be the case uh, for the balance of, of the year, but essentially trying to correlate that with labor market situation is you know, is a bit of a head scratcher and of course it means every model you've got is is not telling you what what you're seeing in part i think it's an issue of some of the developments that we were expecting for a very long time with respect to demographics in the labor market have really come home uh, to kind of roost at this point uh, in particular the baby boom rolling out of the, the labor market is is almost the thing that is pushing down labor force participation rates. That is not only about numbers of people, but it's also about experience within the labor market, which is going to feed into productivity numbers as well as the absolute kind of uh, labor, you know, usual labor supply issues. So I, I think 
you can begin to tell stories that reconcile the softening of GDP growth and the and the and the tight labor market. But you know, you're 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 telling a story that has not typically been the type of story uh, that that you would tell. There's also sort of the kind of argument which I would be willing to take fairly seriously that the uh, GDP numbers, you know, are out of line with the gross domestic income numbers and some of the seemingly odd correlations uh, between labor markets and, and economic growth can be resolved that way. I don't think we'll know the answers to these things for for a bit yet. Fair enough. So there was, we talked about below trend growth and, and softening of the labor market. The other criteria for either I guess slowing down the pace of hikes or even pausing is quote unquote compelling evidence that inflation is coming down. What are you looking for on that front? What would you like to see? Well, first of all, it doesn't matter what I like. I mean, I'm not the one <laughs> pulling the trigger on things. Uh, again, I'll kind of revert to, you know, when probably the staff at the Atlanta Fed is going to start arguing that. And it really does have to do with that issue of the breadth of price changes. I think once we, you know, in, in normal times, it's been that the um, the percentage of components in the broad market basket, consumer market basket, rising at outsized rates. Of course, at any given time, there will be some prices rising pretty rapidly and some prices rising, you know, falling, actually, sometimes at very rapid paces. So the question is, what does that kind of broad center look like? Those, you know, that would typically be something like 25% or, or so that are rising at really outsized rates. So we definitely want to see that kind of statistic move in, in that direction. You know, at the Atlanta Fed, we have these dashboards of uh, inflation statistics, which include things like the Cleveland Fed trim mean and the median and the Dallas Fed uh, trim mean. And I think these are all collections of very kind of useful indicators that tell you where the center of the, of, of the trend is in growth. And so those numbers just aren't improving very quickly. So we, we, want to, we would want to see for some period of time, meaning more than a month um, or two uh, even, a real broad softening price pressures. And that's just a long ways away from where we are now. What happens? Would you be comforted if, if there was a narrowing of categories and yet you saw this kind of outsized contribution from owner's equivalent rent, the whole housing component thing. If that kept flaring up, but everything else was coming down, would you have a sense that like, okay, we're on the right path and we know where this is coming from? Yeah, I think I personally would. We know that OER is a lagging element of the of the basket. We also know that OER is not all that meaningful <laughs> in the sense of the on-the-ground circumstances of real uh, of real individuals. It's an, it's an implicit kind of element of the uh, of the price picture. So if it was any sort of obvious outlier in an otherwise general momentum in the in the market basket, that would begin to feel uh, more comfortable, even if the headline numbers didn't quite, or even the core number uh, as traditionally measured would not, not necessarily reflect that. So it's that broad base middle that kind of is the key, I think, to figuring out whether progress is being made or not. Okay. So speaking of housing, how are you looking at that sector in particular, given the interest rate sensitivity and given that it has kind of been at the, on the front lines of feeling the brunt of rate hikes so far? Well, I mean, look, this was to be expected. You know, we have an interest rate tool. It is going to hit interest rate sectors and housing obviously is 
front and forward uh, on that. So it's not much of a surprise. Uh, again, we hope that, you know, this is, uh, I say we, I think broadly everybody in the world hopes that that effect is, um, doesn't get extreme and is short-lived when we can get over on the other side of this process. But, you know, it's the way monetary policy works is, is, is really sort of the answer. That credit channel that typically is the, you know, the, the first order channel for uh, the transmission of monetary policy is a little bit tricky now because, you know, credit is not scarce. And that makes this episode, you know, different than periods where we're, we're sort of seriously worrying about softening in the economy where, you know, you have a lot of leverage, you have a lot of debt, you have households of businesses that are kind of visibly out over their skis. And that that's not the situation we find ourselves in now. So it's not a surprise, but whether or not we'll see more of it or need to see more of it is kind of the open question. So one of the key justifications for for the aggressiveness with which the FOMC is moving, of course, is to keep inflation expectations from becoming unanchored in spite of the headline readings that we're getting to get people not to expect those those readings to that you know to persist. How what's your reading on inflation expectations right now? They have come down by some measures, but the sort of one year ahead measures are elevated and and your own business inflation expectations index seems to still be fairly high. You know, I, I, A, I think you're right that you can attribute the fairly uh, aggressive posture of monetary policy to the understanding that we sort of developed in kind of whole bodies of research and experience over the post, you know, 1980s period as learning the lesson that if you let inflation expectations get away from you, you are going to have a very tough fight to fight. So they are elevated. I tend to put myself a little bit more weight on the, on the expectations uh, from uh, businesses and from survey of professional forecasters, for example, than the household surveys, which seem to be a little bit more volatile and a little bit harder to interpret sometimes some of the, some of the movements in those. So I'm not convinced myself that inflation expectations have really, particularly in the near term, have really begun to sort of move very consistently south. Longer term inflation expectations, though they're elevated relative to history, the histories are short. Uh, and, you know, the movements have not been, you know, crazy large or anything like that. So I do think that there's a reasonable case that uh, the actions that the committee has been taking have been uh, sufficient uh, thus far to uh, keep inflation expectations in check and keep that to the sidelines as in uh, as um, not uh, part of the problem. And so, so far, so good is basically my bottom line on that. And that's, you know, why you hear, you know, people like Raphael, you know, kind of saying it's really important that we kind of stick to our guns on this and, and, and not waver because that uh, would be a disaster to see people begin to embed, you know, policy failure into their expectations. Chair Powell and the committee have made clear that they want to get policy to restrictive levels, which they've also said made, make, means that it requires positive real interest rates. How do you think about that, the notion of, of getting real interest rates positive? Are you looking at current Fed funds versus current CPI, or is it an expected inflation thing over what horizon? It's a pretty tricky question since the, you know, the tool is a short-term tool 
you're kind of inclined to think that the the interest rate you kind of need to be thinking about is the shorter term interest rate. That's a different concept than the neutral rate uh, that we are typically using as as reference points. So chalk that down is another one of these cases where you know the uh, you know the frameworks in which we've been operating you know, are not so clearly fantastic guides to kind of what we need to be doing now. But yeah, I tend to look at the shorter end of things when I think about kind of that question specifically. Okay. And I wanted to ask you a couple of last questions about the global outlook. We tend to be very domestically focused and and the Fed's policy certainly has a domestic mandate, but of course it has ripple effects on the rest of the world as we're seeing in global markets with the dollar strength pounds rather rapid decline, you know, not just today, but in in recent weeks and uh, Japanese yen weakness as well. well. How are you looking at these spillovers from Fed policy to the world and, and then potential blowbacks to the U.S. economy? Yeah. So the way that we typically kind of um, incorporate those, those international developments is as uh, a part of the macroeconomic environment. It's a long-standing and I think appropriate position of people within the Federal Reserve to say that the best thing we can do for the global economy is to make sure that the U.S. economy is operating the the way it should. And I don't really see any alternative to to that view, quite frankly. However, the spillovers and, um, you know, correlated nature of the circumstances in the global economy mean that we have to pay attention to them. But I, you know, when I do my job, um, I'm uh, mainly focused on that as data. Uh, It's just another thing that we sort of have to factor in when we think about kind of the trajectory of the U.S. economy. And so if there are, you know, general equilibrium spillovers to, to the rest of the world, that becomes part of the calculation. In that vein, how do you think about the energy shock that's hit that's hit Europe? Do you think of it more as a as a growth hit to the region and therefore, you know, as a growth drag for us? Or is it another inflationary shock that we have to worry about? Well, it's both. You know, I think the nat- natural gas, the natural gas markets, even though there, you know, there is a pretty large separation between the US and the and, and Europe, for example, in terms of prices, and we've seen those dramatic that, that gap dramatically doesn't mean we're immune from it. So I think you know it, it is a prototypical supply shock in that it affects both growth and it affects pri- affects prices. And you know very negative developments and uh, in Europe are you know they're we are not going to bypass uh, the pain from that completely. It is an open question how big that impact is likely to be. Again, this is this is a pretty unusual, very unusual circumstance. But you know, we have an energy advisory council in the in the sixth district, the Atlanta Fed's district. You know, we keep poking poking them to kind of tell us what, what they think. And the the clear message that we get from them is that uh, you know we we will not escape any kind of serious disruptions in Europe. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dave. I always enjoy speaking with you, and this time was no exception. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Yep, glad to do it. All right, that was David Altig, Research Director at the Atlanta Fed.